The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Have you got a shady location where nothing else will grow? Are you tired of mowing grass? Do you have a problem with soil erosion? How about a desire to avoid chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides? In this episode, Annie Martin, moss landscape designer and timber press author of The Magical World of Moss Gardening, talks about how native mosses can be an excellent horticultural alternative. Annie, also known as Moss and Annie, is the owner of Mountain Moss in Pisgah Forest, North Carolina. She provides valuable insights on how to transform your outdoor living space into a serene retreat and eco-friendly landscape. In this episode, her how-to tips will help you get started on your own appealing year-round green moss gardening project. This is episode 123, How to Create a Moss Garden, with Annie Martin, better known as Moss and Annie, an encore presentation and remix of episode 65. Annie, why do you moss garden? Greg, the reason people garden is to make their hearts smile. At least I think that should be their purpose. That's definitely what's happening in my life as a mosser. I have a big grin on my face when I gaze into the green expanse that's available to me all year round. Not just in the summer, when all those other plants are dead and dying that most gardeners enjoy and they're wishing spring would hurry up. I'm just sitting here gloating as I enjoy my year-round green of mosses. What are the benefits of mosses? Craig, benefits of moss gardening are multifold. First, to your spirit. Second, the visual appeal, curb appeal. The view of a destination that you can enjoy from inside your house looking out or the place where you go to sit and reflect or to celebrate. That's a second aspect. And then, as if that wasn't enough, let's throw in the fact that mosses are really good for our environment in a multitude of ways, too. What are some of those benefits? We could start with the biggest one of all, and that is as air purification. Sphagnum peatland cover 2 to 3% of the world's land mass. They sequester more carbon than all of the tropical rainforests put together. They're really part of what helps to deal with air pollution issues all around the world. That's one benefit. Also, they don't require any chemicals. Mosses do not need herbicides or pesticides or fertilizers. Don't have to mow mosses. You're not putting your own air pollution out. There's just so many benefits environmentally from moss garden. How about erosion control and soil stabilization? Do mosses do a good job with that? Yes, Craig, that is another environmental benefit for sure, because mosses, some grow upright, some grow sideways. 
you can use them to help create a filtration that occurs when the rainwater starts to rush down steep hillside, for instance. The mosses allow the water to flow through the entire plant system and colony. Mosses are unique botanically. They don't have any cuticle on their leaves, hence the water enters the leaves immediately. As it does, it starts to absorb into the mosses, slow down, and gradually enter the groundwater table at a rate that will end up resolving the problem at the bottom of the hill. You're getting ready to start your first moss garden. How do you begin? What triggers the desire for many people is that they see a little bit of moss growing in their own yard. Or they have enjoyed it as a child or throughout their life, hiking in the woods and say, I want to bring that green experience to my garden. As a starting point, if you're lucky enough to already have existing mosses, you can encourage them to grow in with several different methods. That is not the only way to enjoy mosses. You'd be a proactive gardener and you can intentionally introduce mosses as your preferred horticultural choice, particularly as an alternative to grass or other invasive kind of plants that you may not want. Don't feel limited, though, to having shade necessarily because there are many moss species that are versatile and can live in conditions that vary from shade to partial sun. Some of them even live in full sun. In urban settings, it's getting harder to find places to garden and there are more challenges. How does moss fit into those situations? There are so many opportunities to use mosses wherever you live. If you're in a high-rise condominium, you could do a container garden or you could create a rooftop garden. That's a great opportunity. In fact, there are two particular species of mosses that are considered sidewalk mosses and can be found in the cracks of sidewalks in New York City, Paris, or even Kyoto. Some of them will be truly versatile species that are, quote, native to the world, not to a specific locale, region, or even country. That gives you an opportunity to garden in the sun. There are also opportunities to garden in the shade. If you are in a small space and have a patio, for instance, flagstone looks great laid out and people are so proud of it, but you can add that extra level of ambiance if you introduce mosses in those cracks, mimicking just exactly how they would grow, quote, in their natural urban habitat. One other way is creating pocket gardens or visual focal features where you skirt a tree, which means to place mosses all the way around in a circle or a shade. And this is where you have the opportunity to become very creative. Mosses are not just flat sideways growers. Some are upright, get various mound shapes. This is where I step in as a moss artist. The ground becomes my canvas. The mosses that I have laid out to utilize are all around me like my paints. And it just starts to come together very often like a jigsaw puzzle. You just know where to put them. It gives you an opportunity to be creative, to offer depth and dimension through various shapes and nuances of green. If you don't have a full circle, put an apron on the front of a rock. 
Create a bench, a place where you can sit outside and have mosses to be your footstool. There's nothing better than a soft moss cushion. (laughs) I could go on and on because mosses go with every other plant, whether they're native, whether perennial or annuals. Mosses are fantastic companions with all types of plants. What are some companion plants that go well with mosses? Sometimes if you're wanting to create a miniature landscape with the undulations of the moss mounds and the carpets, you can add in miniature plants. Some of my favorites happen to be dwarf crested iris or iris cristata. I also like Michella repens, which is partridge berry. If you're really lucky, you might accent in Oconee bells or what's called Shortia galaxifolia. And then Goodyera pubescens, which are little downy rattlesnake plantains, and they're actually a wild orchid. Mosses look great with fern. They look beautiful with my daffodils, perennials that are favorite grandmother flowers, too. Even with perennials, I created an accent along a path one time, utilizing some impatience that were bright pink. They created incredible contrast against the green. You can use mosses in any setting. It could be a native restoration, could be a Japanese-style garden. Mainly remember that it's your space. You need to fill your heart and make it smile. And then think about the neighbors and if they're going to enjoy it too. Got to really analyze what are the aspects of the microclimate in terms of sun and then also moisture. To have a successful moss garden, you do need to choose the appropriate species based on the sun exposure. That's the primary factor. Second is that you need, in all likelihood, to provide some supplemental watering. All mosses look better when they're hydrated. Some mosses may change dramatically from wet to dry and look very different. Some shrivel, some wrap around, some scrunch up so much you can hardly recognize them. Then some don't change much at all in the dry stage. Some can be used for magic tricks, though, where you could take a mister and squirt them right before your very eyes. They'll hydrate within seconds or minutes. Bottom line is provide some supplemental watering. I live in the highest annual rainfall east of the Rocky Mountains. And even so, there are times when it doesn't rain enough. When the heat index is high, the temperatures are scorching or high winds are drying the moss plants out, supplemental watering will just help them look better and grow faster. Of course, faster is a relative term when it comes to mosses. (laughs) I always think of it as kind of a slow process, is it? Yes, it really is. There are ways you can speed it up in terms of planting methods. The one I prefer as a moss artist is to do it complete coverage. That way, by planting in a contiguous fashion, you have instant gratification. You're not waiting for it to grow in. That's my preference. There are methods that I recommend in my book, The Magical World of Moss Gardening, where you can take what I call cookies. You can call them whatever you want to. My friend calls them pancakes. He makes his bigger than hand size. You place them out in the landscape and then fill in with frag. Got this spaced out like a baking sheet, depending on what the size is. If they're hand size, you leave about another hand in between. You can secure colonies in place using twigs. Frags are fragments of moss plant, and that is one of the ways that mosses reproduce. How do you get a frag? 
You tear the colony apart. Just shred it in your hands. Okay. If you want to, you can use scissors. You certainly do not need to use a blender. You do not need to pulverize mosses. You do not need to use buttermilk, which will be stinky, and draw critters to your garden. And think how many blender containers it would take to do a garden. It's so much simpler to just distribute your frags on slightly scratched up hard packed soil, water them, and then you walk on them. That's it. It's a simple process. Moss milkshake is the number one myth out there on the internet that continues to be perpetuated. Although people, just like me, would love to paint the world green with moss. That is not going to be the way you will achieve it. It's haphazard, yields inconsistent results, although it is based on the botanical fact that mosses grow asexually through the vegetative reproductive process. I want to just put that little moss milkshake myth to rest. Out of the thousands of times I've been asked that question, I've had only a handful of people that could truthfully say they had any success. Frankly, a little bit of green patina on a pot is not my idea of gardening. I want to see much greater success. I'm a licensed landscape contractor in North Carolina. I need to be able to provide consistency and beautiful results. I can think back to a colony of mosses on a landscape project that I saved from the rototiller. The homeowners were able to see the beauty in it. The thing that struck me the most about it was the color that were in those mosses. Can you speak to that? There's so many species of mosses in the world. They do range in different color palettes of green (laughs) primarily. I am very tickled when I see interior decorators saying they're using moss green paint. I look at it and I think, well, if you had to pick a moss, I guess you pick leucobrium in its dry state. Because greens can be intense and rich and range from pale greens to emerald greens. You can sometimes even find olive greens. And oftentimes there will be golden overtones to the plants too, particularly if they're having a reaction to sun. Certain moss species, that is the norm. There are a couple of common species here in the southeast that are sideways growers, hypnum and thuidium. They're often referred to as fern mosses, and heaven forbid in the floral world, they're called sheet mosses. I do believe that's a cuss word. In the early spring, before the leaf canopy has filled in, the sun is already getting intense. The plants will shift to a yellow color. Now, it's a vibrant yellow. It's not a sick yellow like you get from that old zoysia grass that people have and how it looks in the wintertime. It's a gorgeous, intense, beautiful color. Unlike the brilliant fall colors of our leaves on the trees that then turn brown and then fall off and make a lot of mess for us, once the top of the trees is filled in with the leaves and there's more shade, those two species in particular will just shift back green. I keep talking about green, Craig, but there are other colors you can enjoy too. From the sporophytes, I've mentioned the asexual reproductive process that I refer to when I talk about frag planting. But mosses have a two-step reproductive process. Is it okay to have an X-rated comment? Go ahead. Mosses have sex. They have a male and a female part on these little tiny plants. They actually have sperm that swims out and goes over and finds the egg in that archegonium. 
then instead of making a baby, though, they go into the second stage of reproduction. And that is a sporophyte. The sporophyte is a little stem called a cedar that sticks up and at the very top is a capsule. Now, mind you, this is in miniature. We're talking about a capsule that's the size of a grain of rice, perhaps, or smaller. Some sporophytes may only be a half inch or some may be as tall as four inches. But what's so cool is that some will be crimson. Others are bronze. Some are brilliant bright yellow. Others will be ombre shades as they grow through their maturation process. At the end, once the spores that accumulate in the capsule are mature, they have these little peristome teeth around the opening. I won't get too botanical on all of that. They're able to flagellate and the wind Perhaps rain or even a critter that bumps into the moss spore fights can help distribute those spores. If you want to look at it from a typical gardening perspective, sporophytes would be considered flowers in the sense that they offer the spore, which might be the equivalent of a seed. Then they have third way too. They have special little male plants too that look like cups and they get new green growth from propagule balls that are in them. So there's three ways that mosses can grow. If you're wanting to encourage the mosses that are already there, you can rake them up. You're going to dislodge certain portions of it. And those, quote, frags can then be spread into adjacent barren areas where you can pick them up. I keep myself a frag bag around or I've got a great vest that has these wonderful Captain Kangaroo pockets. I'm just stuffing my frags in there if I happen to come across them from doing other maintenance work. Yes, you get wonderful green, you get wonderful reds, and other jewel tone colors. When you're getting ready to install your mosses, do you dig a hole for them, or how does that work? Craig, that's one of the things I enjoy most about moss gardening is because I don't have to dig any holes, except for one species. And that's an upright grower that is rather tall, and therefore its rhizoids go down deeper into the soil. For that reason, a hole is advantageous. You want to get that soil base into it. Otherwise, you just use hard-packed soil without any amendments. You don't need to worry about it. Although, if you want to be concerned about pH, you can, but it's not near as important as most people think it is. You slightly scratch it with a three-pronged digger, a stick, pointy rock, whatever's convenient for you, and then you sit the upright colonies right next to each other. I want to also mention that there are a few species that don't just grow upright and or don't grow sideways. The one I'm going to specifically mention is Climacium. It has a sideways rhizoid with upright growth. In this particular case, the mosses actually do prefer enriched soil. They don't necessarily have to live in the shade. They can tolerate being in sun too. So I consider it an ideal species. The tops get as big as silver dollars. So it's not miniature and only grows about two inches tall. So it kind of looks like little trees. It's a linear growth. In the soil there, you would enrich the soil if it's nutrient poor and you would loosen it and plant the rhizoid like you would a vine. The only moss that I plant in a method that would be similar to, quote, other plants in the world. 
Climasium happens to be the most regenerative of all the moss species. And even when it reaches its stage where it looks like the plant is dead and dried up, new green growth will appear out of a leaf, out of a stem, out of the rhizoid. So I use Climasium as my preferred frag planting moss as well. The creative process, as I mentioned before, is intuitive. For me, the mosses speak and say, okay, I'm next. I don't go right there where you were just planting. I want to be over here in this other spot. And it starts to come together as you create a miniature landscape of mounds and carpet. For the carpet or sideways growers, you want to take the edges and interleaf them. That means over, under, over, under. For all the mosses, when you've gotten them in place, you want to water them thoroughly and walk on them. If you can't walk on them, for instance, you're doing one of those patios and the cracks are just too little for even a Cinderella foot to get in there, you can use a hammer, I'm not kidding you, or even a mallet. If you're a professional landscaper, you can use a tamper. The point I'm trying to make here is that you do not need to be gentle with the mosses. You want to make sure that the rhizoids are going to connect with the soil or the substrate that you're planting them on. I did just mention rhizoids. That's something that's different about mosses from other plants. They don't have roots. They have rhizoids. And the whole purpose is for them to hold the moss colony to whatever substrate or surface it's growing on. They do not feed the plant. Remember, I told you how they get fed through those leaves. We're back to another unique aspect that distinguishes mosses from other vascular plants. So they can literally attach on just about anything then from rock, soil, side of buildings, trees. They can if they're introducing themselves. There are other manipulative techniques you may need to use if you're trying to get moss to grow on a full 90-degree vertical wall. I would start it in horizontal position, number one. And I wouldn't start with a wall. Start with something small. Don't say, I want my whole grass lawn to be moss. You better start with a little corner first and create that visual destination or a place that you can create as an outdoor living space. Yes, rocks are another good way. Back to that moss milkshake. I had me a little concrete bunny that I wanted moss to grow on. I painted it several times. I've even done my own quasi-experiments on that without success, I will say. The way you can get it, do that growing on different objects, plant it right next to or adjacent to sideways growers, and they will start to creep up the side. If you want it on the top of the statue or on the top of the rock, all you got to do is put a little stone on top like a little hat, hold it in place for a while till the rhizoids connect. Understand that? It's like a little top hat. It's just simple, common sense. A lot of this is common sense as long as you throw away all your gardening knowledge. For instance, when I mentioned that mosses will benefit from supplemental watering sessions, they need to be very brief. No longer do you need drenching soaks like you do for other plants because mosses will hydrate quickly. Any extra watering is just overkill. It's waste. Where I notice moss the most is going to Bermuda lawn. Bermuda needs full sun, but it was planted in the shade, so it's starting to decline. But moss is starting to take over there. How do you go ahead and encourage the moss and get the intertwining Bermuda grass out of it? You know, grass is a cuss word to me, (laughs) (laughs) but I can definitely tell you how to get rid of grass. 
what you would do is start to mow the grass or weed it down as low as possible. That will really hamper any successful growth of the grass itself. You can rake the existing mosses to help spread them. And the mowing process in and of itself will spread mosses throughout the area. Because when you cut grass, you end up with a dead blade. When you cut mosses, hey, botanically they can grow from fragments. That means you're spreading the mosses. The more you mow, the better you spread your mosses. Then supplemental watering, if you want to help them grow in better, you start adding more water. Obviously, if they're already growing there, they have self-introduced. They like the conditions. If you want to enhance them or make them more visual appealing, you need to water them more? Right. And weed them. Okay. And you can start to get to the point of where you're not just letting it grow. To me, that's the turtle method. I don't know if I'm going to be around tomorrow. I don't know if any of the rest of us can count on that either. I truly believe that you can wait for years for it to grow in that way. You can actively try to kill the grass by using a chemical killer that could be effective, particularly if you already have a beautiful mossy area, but you've got weeds or grass starting to come up into it. You can use a commercial chemical called Spectricide Weed and Grass Killer. I'm not trying to promote any particular product, but it does work. You can use it right off the shelf. You need to use it during the appropriate temperature range that's recommended on the directions. It will kill the grass and weeds and not stress the moss. Now, I wouldn't do it when we're having these scorching days that are breaking record temperatures. You can be successful that way if you want to use a chemical. All right, well, what about manually in the moss? Can you pull your weeds out? How does that work? Sure, you can pull your weeds out. You can go have a zen experience in a moss garden if you want to. Actually, some people do enjoy it because you're quiet and you're up close and personal and you get to see the features of the moss plants. Also, I don't garden with gloves. If the mosses, the trees, and the mushrooms are having conversations, perhaps some of that good spirit will absorb through your fingertips if you're not wearing gloves. To that conversation, by the way, the scientists are talking about the trees and mushrooms talking to each other. They forgot that mosses started the conversation and they never left. I guarantee you those mosses are not keeping quiet while all the trees and mushrooms are chatting around with each other. They've got something to say. Mosses are 450 million years old. Scientifically, they're referred to as bryophytes or classified as bryophyta. These plants were on planet Earth 50 million years before there was any other plant. That's a pretty long time, isn't it, Craig? Oh, yeah. Mosses truly colonized the Earth. They helped to break down rock to create soil so that there was a stage for other plants to grow here and become the lush planet that we have. Mosses have watched the dinosaurs come and go. They have experienced all kinds of cataclysmic disasters. Mosses have phenolic compounds that make them immune to cold so they can be planted in any planting zone in America because they don't care how cold they get. They taste bad, and these compounds also allow mosses sometimes to even live in the most horrendous of conditions. In our normal backyard, that just might be deep shade and nutrient-poor soil. 
they can be the first species to self-introduce after a hazardous waste site is abandoned, at a copper mine, or even after a fire. They are amazing how they can regenerate, rejuvenate, and start to come back even after major types of stresses. That doesn't mean you can't kill them. If you don't give them good water, they will have an issue. Sometimes beautiful colony, you let it dry out, dry out, it's going to turn into a crispy critter, little cow turd, curl all up and everything. Obviously, it's too dry then. You have not provided enough water and neither has Mother Nature. And you can't count on her. I've already learned that. She can be over generous with her watering or she can be dingy and not give you any for days or weeks. Supplemental watering is going to be a key to having beautiful moss gardens and to encourage existing moss growth where it is. Also, maintenance. One good way to kill mosses is to leave leaves on the mosses, cover them up. They're plants. They still need sunlight. They still have a photosynthesis process. Literally, you are smothering them out if you have your leaf pile over there on the edge on top of your mosses. That frequently happens. All these other methods when people are trying to kill mosses, typically they're systemic killers. Mosses are non-vascular and therefore they should not be affected by typical ways that people try to get rid of them. And that's why landscapers and homeowners can be very frustrated if they don't want mosses. Just give in and embrace the mosses, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes that would be simpler and easier is just to go with what will grow there. How about mosses as mulch? Mulch is one of those other cuss words in my book. I use mosses underneath bushes in lieu of mulch all of the time. Why do you think that there's not been a whole lot of research into mosses from a horticulture or a gardening perspective? Well, we are dealing with the obsession with grass, number one. Our schools of horticulture oftentimes are trying to find better ways to grow turf, the hardier sods that they can have that will roll out. It's almost like a mystery to me. In the schools of bryology, they're concerned with the taxonomy of mosses from a scientific perspective. The schools of horticulture oftentimes still consider mosses a weed. There are many research topics that I feel need to be conducted, although you don't need to use fertilizers because mosses literally in nature drink through their leaves and eat dust particles. That's it. Could they benefit from some fertilizers? A little bit of research was done in England by Michael Fletcher. His initial studies indicated that certain nutrients or micronutrients might encourage better growth for one species, and the very next species in the next experimental tray would desiccate. Needs to be conducted as species-specific, controlled, variable research, and that hadn't happened. How many of us have gone to a nursery and brought home a pretty flowering plant and there's some moss growing at the base of the plant in the pot? Well, that tells me that we know that nurseries are fertilizing every day practically to keep those things looking good. They can handle some fertilizer. Which ones? We don't know for sure. I would say the water makes a bigger difference. It's when I first started out myself without any references on how to plant or what these nuances would be towards being successful. I heard that all mosses were acid lovers. Well, that's not true. I've since learned better. 
I thought, let me just use some mirror acid on here when I water. That made sense to me. And my mosses looked real good. And then I had a professor come visit. He said, you are so lucky you just didn't kill them. The next year, all I did was water them. They looked just as good. <laughs> it hadn't been a factor. It was the watering that made the difference. What kind of regular maintenance should we be doing with the mosses? Typically, you need to do consistent maintenance in terms of debris, pickup, twigs, then, of course, leaves. You'll avoid raking leaves, except for if you're trying to get existing mosses to spread. That's the one exception we'll have. You can blow them. Established mosses, you can use that blower on high if you want to. You need to use jerky motion that are lifting up the leaves versus blowing long, hard streams. Because you might blow the mosses away. You also won't blow away when leaves are wet. Because wet leaves blow away good. Wet mosses tend not to. In addition to that, y'all, if you live anywhere and you've been observant, if you're around pine trees or oak trees, you may be gifted with male catkins. In the case of oaks, I have a very rude term. I just call them oak crappers. They're those little tassels. And with pine trees, they're those little brown footballs. May and June are football season at my mossery, and literally those little brown footballs will be everywhere. You need to not let other types of plant matter accumulate because, once again, if you cover up the mosses, they're not going to be able to breathe and live. Maintenance is important. You may also have to do some critter repairs. If nighttime critters come digging in your mosses, birds steal your moss to make a nest, your dog runs across the yard and tears up a spot. Good thing is that mosses are easily replanted where they came from. If you find that your whole lift is smaller than the piece that's dislodged, that's a great sign. Your mosses are really healthy. They have actually gained loft even with a sideways grower. So maintenance on a consistent basis is important, and it will need to occur throughout all the years. And, of course, that way we've already mentioned weeding as a necessity as well. I preach the three W's, water, walk, and weed. Those are the main things you need to do. What kind of letter could I come up with for blowing leaves away and picking up debris? Doesn't seem to have that ring of the three W's, so just throw it in. <laughs> You mentioned your dog or animals. Do mosses respond to dog urine or is that not a problem? Yeah, they respond all right. They say, we don't want you to come use us as your bathroom. Dog urine can harm mosses. What I do oftentimes if it occurs is either pull that area out, give it what I call a heavy hand fluff where you rub your hand real fast over the top and get the old disturbed damaged plants so that new green growth can occur, then you can top dress it with some frags. So that's one way to fix a dog urine space. I have a specimen leucobrium that is a mound species and it's huge. It's literally two feet long by about a foot high. It is so exceptional. I built a shrine out of rocks, elevated it off the ground my dog can't cock his leg that high. <laughs> I do know people that are Johnny on the spot, and they get out there and they water the spot immediately. That can reduce the impact of urine. But unfortunately, yes, it is a problem. I see mosses just about everywhere. But you also see a lot of places disturbed, and the moss is gone forever. How do you rescue mosses? Okay, you have 
touched my heart because one of my primary motivations is to literally rescue mosses, to give them an opportunity to live and provide joy and year-round grief to other people. Obviously, they're not being appreciated if they're in danger of destruction. There's all kinds of opportunities to rescue. But let's make a distinction between rescue, which is saving mosses literally from being destroyed, It's going to happen. Inevitable. Second would be harvesting, removing mosses judiciously and leaving a portion so that they can grow back. And that might be where you've been granted permission to, quote, harvest mosses from the property. But you're hoping that sometime in the future, the people will appreciate them. You're going to leave some. Then there's that third category. And I have to mention this because I really want to admonish anyone that has ever taken mosses from a protected park, state, national park, forest, leave the mosses there. There are plenty of opportunities. If you live in a city, you can be walking down the street, look over there in the corner where the air conditioner is, where there's a little niche of moisture. You can retrieve certain species of mosses, Ceratodon and Priam in particular, Platygerian would be another one you might find in the city. Mosses will be growing on walls. Guess what? They're going to come and pressure wash that wall clean in a lot of cases. Same thing with parking lots. I do urge you that if you are doing any urban rescues, that you be aware of your surroundings and the people that may be nearby and whether you're in any kind of danger. Speaking of that, if you climb up on a roof, which is another great urban rescue opportunity, You need to have a spotter. Always do that. Be very careful. I hand remove mosses from roofs. They're amazing species because they already tolerate a high heat index and typically they're sun tolerant as well. Those would be urban kinds of opportunities. How about just before the landscaper comes and puts more mulch or pine needles down around the plants in front of your apartments? It's amazing how many people destroy mosses or cover them up. It's routine in their landscaping practices. There are other opportunities where you may be able to rescue on a larger scale. If so, take everything you can. If the loggers are coming in, if the bulldozers are poised there on the street to push everything away, get all that you can. You do need to recognize that the mosses need to be staged or you need to plant them right away. You can stage them for a while. Oftentimes, if you have the opportunity to rescue from a spot that's not under immediate danger, but it's scheduled to be destroyed, then you can get a certain amount, come back and deal with it. I know people that just walk around their neighborhoods and they scrape the mosses off the roads right there on the pavement itself, then bring it back home. A toboggan sled is a great way to transport your mosses. I'm very fanatic about keeping them clean. So you give them a heavy hand fluff. You might sweep them a little bit or you might even blow them before you retrieve them. But you definitely want to remove weeds or any debris before you plant them. As you're retrieving, you put the first layer in. Typically, you're going to put your green up. You can go green to green, dirt to dirt. And that works with certain species. Others that have soil attack. You may want to create a layering effect by using strips of blue tarp in your sled. Only tool I typically use is a barbecue spatula with a nice, long, sturdy handle. You're dislodging them with a spatula. 
start with my fingertips, but then I can get underneath there and get big pieces. Yeah. Obviously, if you're planting a garden, the bigger the pieces, the better. You don't want to have little tiny pieces. You may end up with frags and you can utilize them. If you actually have the opportunity to ever pull log moss, it is an amazing experience. It's even sadder when you know that it was sitting out there and then the bulldozers came before you got to it. And that happened. I just had a roof rescue where they just demolished the building and it was on a roof that was too high for me to get to. Mm. I was going to have to get in the bucket truck and I'm, I'm just a little bit chicken <laughs> that climbing up too high. And I also only do slight angle pitches. I can't do steep roofs. In terms of rescuing mosses, we can also look at the other options of harvesting or Stealing. Rescuing is taking from a place where they will be destroyed at some point. So take everything you can. Harvesting would be to remove mosses judiciously, leaving a certain portion so that they can grow back in. And then stealing, y'all, everybody all know what that is. That means taking it when you don't have permission and from protected areas that have been set aside for us all to enjoy, such as national and state parks and forests. Where can you get moss besides rescuing them? Well, you would want to buy mosses from a legitimate moss supplier. Unfortunately, there are many unethical practices that exist in the moss industry. I happen to have a mossery, and I do sell to the public through my online moss shop. And my website is mountainmoss.com. And there are a few other people around that do it, but beware, because I get a lot of complaints from people that purchase from elsewhere. What about plants that are called mosses, but aren't really mosses? There's certainly a number of them out there, and it can be confusing to a gardener. They think they're buying moss, perhaps at the garden center. And if it's called Irish moss or Scotch moss, that seems to make sense. But the reality is those particular plants are vascular. They have flowers and they have roots. No true bryophyte or moss will ever have those features. Remember, they'll have a rhizoid, but no root. They'll have sporophytes but not flowers. So that's one way people get tricked. But then there are other plants that, of course, people in the South are very familiar with in the low country, and that would be Spanish moss. That's not a moss either. It's actually in pineapple family, and it's an epiphytic. Reindeer moss, that's another one. Reindeer moss is actually a lichen. It can be beautiful as an accent plant. I do utilize it in my design sometimes. Then there's club mosses. Club mosses are actually lycopods. In the mountains here, we have shining club moss, which is another wonderful accent to use. But then there are other club mosses that can be hard to introduce, the ones that are like called running ground cedar or princess pine. What else could there be out there that's called moss? Oh, moss flocks. That's plant flocks with the beautiful bright flowers, and it can be called moss flocks sometimes, but I guarantee you, you sit down on that flocks, it's not going to be comfortable after the fact like a moss would be. Think about it. Just because it's called a moss doesn't mean it's a moss. I've noticed a lot of moss been used in the biophilic movement. Could you comment on that? First, let me explain that. The biophilic concept is that workers will be more productive when they are surrounded by green, when they can engage with nature, when they've got a window, when they can feel airflow, or where they have plants that, quote, may be cleaning the air for them. 
let's look at what a biophilic wall actually is. They're composed of mosses that are dried and preserved. They're not necessarily alive anymore. If you're not providing supplemental watering, even to that interior wall, the mosses will not thrive. If the mosses have been dried and preserved and perhaps even dyed green, they're not cleaning the air anymore. It's just giving something pretty and green to look at. And I have to tell you that for me, I find that the antithesis of the purpose of rejuvenating your spirit. If you're looking at a wall and know that moss could have been alive and somebody's put it up there on the wall to get dusty and not clean the air. Let's talk about your book, The Magical World of Moss Gardening. What possessed you to write that book? When I first started out, there really was only one reference book about moss gardening. And it certainly piqued my interest and started to engage me to the reality that I could intentionally introduce mosses and grow them. But it just didn't give me enough of the specifics or how to troubleshoot certain issues, how to recognize when it's just a natural transition of reproductive growth or a reaction to sun. As I learned by observation in nature and then in my own garden and then when I started creating gardens for other people, that's stepping into a whole new level of being accurate and understanding the nuances of planting. When I was approached by Timber Press, I already had the concept in mind. I do create magic with mosses. That title just seemed to be a natural. How can we benefit from reading your book? I do offer inspiration with lots of impressive photographs of places where mosses grows all around the world, plus information that would be valuable in the selection of species. There's a section of 25 recommended species that are not only like an ID field guide, but how you plant them and where you might plant them, because certain mosses do prefer rock substrates over soil even. Not only planting methods, but how you do your troubleshooting and your maintenance. It's pretty much based on actual observations and experience. It is not philosophy. It is experiential based. And it's tried and true. I'm happy that the garden that I created from an actual asphalt driveway in 2008 to 2009, right there between Thanksgiving and New Year's, in the dead of winter, is absolutely as lush and gorgeous in 2022. That's the garden I was referring to when I'm sitting around grinning like a Cheshire cat about how beautiful my garden is. <laughs> we can get your book directly from you and you'll autograph it. I certainly do, and I'll personally inscribe it. And I will appreciate the direct support for my mossy endeavors if you order the book through my website, mountainmoss.com. Annie, how may people connect with you? Thank you for asking that. I do offer lectures and workshops all around the country. That's an opportunity for garden clubs or environmental groups to learn more about moss gardening. I provide site consultations if you're within a locale that's a reasonable driving distance and phone consultation. Additionally, I'm a moss artist, and remember, I create landscapes. So if you want turnkey landscape, my crew and I can create an inviting retreat in a matter of days. I use social media. My YouTube channel has a number of different how-to type videos. 
you can also experience a spore cloud of ceratodon spores. It is like magic. And you'll hear me squeal every time I rub my hand lightly across the spore tops. The spores are emitted in a little yellow cloud. LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, I use those periodically. The most valuable resource that's out there from my perspective on social media is my group on Facebook called Go Green with Moss. Getting really close to 6,000 members now where we share photos and questions and answers with each other about how to become a successful moss garden. We love to pat each other on the back when people have created a beautiful space and we're encouraging I encourage ID and I expect people to learn their moss species and they can't just call it moss in general. They need to understand that the reason it succeeded was because they used this species in this location. It is a learning experience and it's a friendly worldwide village of other moss gardeners or what I refer to as mossers. If you create moss gardens, if you enjoy moss gardens from a distance, if mosses catch your eyes, when you're taking a hike in the woods. All of that makes you a mosser. Any way you engage with mosses makes you a mosser. Now, Craig, you can be a mosser too. I do appreciate this opportunity to be able to share my perspectives and hope that others will embrace moss gardening as an alternative to other ways of enjoying your outdoor space. In conclusion, I think the most important things to remember are that you should choose the appropriate moss species primarily based on sun exposure. You may also want to consider the substrate that it prefers. The second thing is my three W's. You want to water, walk, and weed. And that watering provides several brief supplemental watering sessions several times throughout the day. It's pretty simple to be a moss gardener. It is highly rewarding to my spirit and hopefully to yours as well. Happy mossing. This has been episode 123, How to Create a Moss Garden with Annie Martin, better known as Moss and Annie, an encore presentation and remix of episode 65. Thank you, Annie. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.